0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's
1: message. Today, God speaks to us from Galatians 5, verses 22 to 24, and Psalm 136, verses 1 to 9, and 23 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting, to him who spread out the earth above waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting, the sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting, the moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who remembered us in our lowest state, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And has rescued us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The word of the Lord.
0: Amen. Thanks be to God. Uh, So, earlier this year, uh, there was a tweet that went viral uh, talking about the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. Now, I will admit that uh, as a lifelong East Coaster, and in particular someone that grew up uh, in New York, I know uh, that New Yorkers, New York City, and then New York in general, uh, do have a tendency to think much of themselves, so caveat before I give you this tweet, Um, but... The tweet said said this. Uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. (laughs) The tweet was actually talking about the culture difference between the East Coast, particularly the Northeast, and the West Coast. All right, so this is what the original tweet had said. Coming from someone who was living on the East Coast, but originally was from the West Coast. He He tweeted, When I describe East Coast versus West Coast culture to my friends, I often say that the East Coast is kind but not nice. The West Coast is nice, but not kind. And East Coasters immediately get it. West Coasters get mad. But then he goes on to give a bunch of examples, but basically summarizes it this way. He said, niceness is saying, I'm sorry you're so cold. While kindness is saying, ugh, you've told me five times you're cold. Here's a sweater. Kindness is addressing the need regardless of the tone. All right, so that was, this went viral. But then a bunch of New Yorkers started chiming in to give examples of this very thesis. One person said, New Yorkers will not say a single word for 15 minutes the whole time they're shoveling your car out of the snow. Another example was, stand at a flight of stairs in a New York City subway with a stroller. Someone will grab the other end, help you carry the stroller, and then walk away without saying a word. I mean, come on, that is spot on, isn't it? But more than what, I, more than what the tweeter was um, pushing on, which was the cultural differences between the East Coast and the West Coast, I actually think more importantly, these tweets are honing in on a verifiable reality. That though we often associate the idea of niceness and kindness, they're actually not the same thing. In fact, today, as we consider uh, and continue our series called The Fruit, which has been a look at the fruit of the Spirit, I think we're going to see that kindness, especially from the biblical perspective, is extraordinarily rare for us to experience. And it's also rare, it's not only rare for us to receive, but it's also very rare for us to give. We should be nice and be kind all the time, but I think too often... That because we might be nice, we assume ourselves to then be kind. I think that happens more often than we realize. But as we're going to see, kindness, at least in niceness, at least from the biblical perspective, is not the same thing. I think too often we're actually not kind people. And so what we're going to see here is how True biblical kindness is actually a picture and a recognition of the fruit of the Spirit that's growing within us. And so, to try to understand what the Bible means by kindness, I think it's important that we see the ways that we fail to be kind in order that we can reclaim the heart of the Christian gospel, which is a gospel of kindness. And so, to do that, let's consider three things. First, Redefining kindness, revealing our failure to be kind, and then the need to reorder our loves. Okay? So first, redefining kindness. What does the Bible mean when it says kindness? Because in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's actually a lot of depth. And so as we've done every single week, I think it's important for us to get a little bit below the surface of this English word that we use as kind to try to understand what the Bible is saying. Uh, In Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, which uh, Galatians 5 would have been written in, uh, the word for kindness in other places throughout the New Testament is also translated goodness and honesty and even usefulness or beneficial. And each of those words and each of those terms we know comes with different implications of what it means to be kind. But what I want to do is actually look at the Hebrew word for kindness that we saw read uh, a moment ago, and that's repeated over and over and over again in the psalm. Because just like in Greek, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament also comes with a variety of uh, um, different translations and understandings because it's hard to nail down one single word that fully embodies this rich, deep, incredibly insightful word that we see Uh, found all throughout the passage. And so what I want to do is take a look at what the Bible, what the Old Testament in particular means, when this word that we see in Psalm 136, uh, is when it's used, this word for kindness is the word hesed. Hesed can be translated in a variety of different ways. Some of the ways that the Old Testament uses the word hesed is translated as mercy or favor or faithfulness or loyalty. In other words, there is this relational depth, this covenant promise that's associated with this word hesed, that we don't often associate with our understanding of the word kindness. Again, we tend to think kindness as being niceness, but kindness is deep and rich and relational. Uh, Ian Duguid, who is uh, an Old Testament professor uh, and was actually one of my wife's professors um, when she was in seminary, uh, has written on the complexities of this Old Testament word hesed. And I'll just be straight with you for the next couple of minutes. You're going to get some biblical theology on this word and then you're also gonna get a whole lot of this guy named Duguid. So I would encourage you, if you ever get some chance, uh, if you ever get the chance to read him, um, I would highly recommend it. But he points out, that hesed occurs uh, really between those who are in relationship with one another, a covenantal relationship with one another. And he notes that it's not merely a term that describes some kind of emotional feelings that someone might have toward another, but rather it speaks of these acts of love that occur merely because one desires to continue that Relationship, desires to serve and to love the other person. Hesed, kindness, is love in action, regardless of whether or not the other person deserves it or has earned it. This is fundamentally what Hesed means. And all throughout the scriptures, the people of God are commanded to Hesed. But most significantly, especially in the Old Testament scriptures, is that the use of the word is often applied to how God loves his people. I mean, look at uh, Psalm 136 that we just heard read a moment ago. It's a perfect example of what I mean. So in verses 1 through 4, what we see is that in his power and in his majesty, God is Hesed. His Hesed is everlasting, And then in verses 5 through 9, we see that he created the world and um, all that's in it because his hesed, his kindness, his loving kindness is everlasting. And then I I didn't put this in there because it would have been too long, but in, in verses 10 through 22, it says that he delivered his people, Israel, by bringing them out of Egypt, that he split the Red Sea, that he gave them the promised land because of his hesed, a hesed that is everlasting. And then in verse 23 through 26, we see that he sees us in our lowest state and provides all that we need, provides for us because his hesed, his loving kindness is everlasting. In his loving kindness, God uses his power for the good of his people. And it is especially significant that he does it even when his people don't deserve it, nor have they earned it. I mean, this is the theme all throughout 136. Nothing has been done for the people and his creation to experience his loving kindness, and yet he is loving kindness. It's everlasting. So when referring to the kindness of God, it's kindness that is loving action rooted in covenantal bonds and loyalty and commitment. That's kindness. But having unpacked biblical kindness, we need to now assess how our own understanding of kindness often fails miserably when understanding this high bar of biblical kindness. Because I think, for the most part, most people would acknowledge that kindness is a virtue that ought to be considered and ought to be um, developed. But I would also venture to say that we often mean niceness when we say kindness. We don't actually mean this kind of kindness. And here's why. Niceness costs us very little. Kindness, though, is very costly. And this is why I think we regularly fail at kindness. Let's understand this. Let's reveal our failure here. Uh, If you remember, earlier in our series, we looked at a list in Galatians 5 uh, that was really the antithesis of the fruit of the Spirit. If, if you remember, the list was about 15 different ways that we, quote, walk in the flesh. Uh, and within that list, a good, at least half of that list is obviously in direct contradiction to what we just described about kindness. All right, listen to just a portion of that list that you see earlier in Galatians 5. That the acts of the, acts of the flesh are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. So if kindness is loving action that is merciful, that seeks the good of others, then when we don't see hesed or kindness, it's because we instead are uh, seeing the works of the flesh coming to fruition, not the fruit of the Spirit coming to fruition, all of which, you know, all of these works of the flesh are really about seeking more the good of self than the good of others. Let me explain what I mean. Look at, the, look at that list again. Or consider that list again. Hatred, Paul says. I mean, what is hatred? I and mean, hatred is this prolonged anger against someone that cannot be appeased and cannot be quelched. Right? You know, often we, we speak about uh, unrighteous anger. Often when I pray, Uh, I don't pray that we wouldn't experience anger, but that we wouldn't experience unrighteous anger. What's the difference? Because anger can be can be good. It can be rooted in a desire for righteousness and justice, right? The, the idea being is that when you see injustice, you ought to be indignant. We ought to be angry. And so there's a way to experience a, a righteous anger. But hatred moves past a righteous anger, and instead it moves into this sustained, uh, this sustained disdain for others, It's this malicious resentment that builds up. It's a desire not for justice, but for vengeance. A vengeance that is often not ours to attain. This is a work of the flesh. Or consider rage that Paul mentions there. Of course, hatred is connected to fits of rage. I mean, this is our inability to control ourselves, lashing out in anger. I mean, these kinds of fits are often rooted in the belief that I am owed something. Are they not? And when I don't get what I want, people are going to experience my displeasure. This is what a fit of rage is. If I feel disrespected, when someone talks to me with a tone that I don't like, when someone on the bus or the train gets in my way, when someone at work doesn't do something the way I want them to do it, as a result, I feel justified in popping off on them. That's a work of the flesh. And it's not others-oriented, it's self-centered. Consider discord and strife and dissensions and factions that Paul speaks of. One biblical commentator, when considering these, uh, says that people, this is really people, begin to choose sides of an issue. And they try to rally others onto their side in order to combat a perceived enemy. It's when there is unnecessary, self-oriented arguments that are not for the good of others, but rather are for the benefit of self. This is uh, too often, I think, of course, pervasive everywhere, but it's become very pervasive, even amongst Christians in various pockets of the church. This discord and this strife and dissensions, instead of there being a desire for people to understand and listen to and learn and be humble, because of the politicalization of everything, there's constant strife. And here's what Christians tend to do. We take that constant strife and we too often wrap it in religiosity and assume that the strife is some kind of righteousness, when in the end, it's just discord, and it's a work of the flesh. Or consider Paul speaking of jealousy and envy. We know what this is. It's an inability to be happy or supportive of others because we wish we had what they had. Now, Aristotle, the philosopher, once mused that jealousy and envy is when we are grieved that another would excel beyond me, not because of the virtue or the worth of that person, but because I would wish to be superior, whether in word or in thoughts. I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, how many times a day are we jealous of someone else? I mean, and I think social media has truly flared a uh, propensity for this. You know, it's so easy now for us to see and to hear others that we wish we could be. Wishing that we had the body or the intellect or the creativity or the lifestyle of others. You know, for me, wishing that I could write or I could preach like other people. I mean, these are things that we regularly fall into. It's so easy. For us to find ourselves in the midst of jealousy. And yet, we're told it's a work of the flesh. Because it's me-oriented, not others-oriented. Or consider this final one, selfish ambition, which really kind of summarizes all of this together. It really gets at the heart of the issue. I mean, selfish ambition, Paul, as Paul describes, it's this complete disregard for the wholeness of others but rather a sole focus on my own success. I mean, we live in New York City, and I gotta tell you, that is one of the central features of what many uh, imagine and assume New York to be. Selfish ambition, and maybe it's even a feature of your lifestyle, my lifestyle, that will do anything we need to to succeed. People all throughout this city will step on and backstab and undermine whoever they need to to climb the ladder. They'll sacrifice their family and their friends for the sake of career successes. They'll make decisions not in a way that considers the good of others, but rather make decisions that most align with what I need or what I desire. It's a work of the flesh. And here's the reality The reason why so often we fail at biblical kindness, a kindness that seeks the good of others, even though they don't deserve it or haven't earned it, is that it requires us to be others-oriented. We cannot be kind unless we are thinking about the good of others. And too often, we are self-oriented. We are naturally selfish, naturally self-focused, naturally self-consumed. And here's the real struggle. This orientation towards self is especially problematic for us today because we live in a time of unprecedented self orientation, self pleasure, self fulfillment. I mean, we live in a time of self definition that willingly and joyfully disregards any convention that misaligns with our own self conception. We do not consider the good of others broadly, but rather what is best for me based on what I feel I need. And in our Western, individualistic, capitalistic culture, we see this all the time because we've lost and we're continuing to lose this sense of corporate responsibility, this togetherness. A covenantal kindness for us is optional because if something doesn't suit my needs, I will move on. And so there's no real bonds that occur, no real responsibility that we feel toward others. You know, I'm not responsible for the plights and the concerns or the problem of others unless I decide that I want to be. And that's a pretty uniquely Western individualistic understanding of how we interact with each other. You know, if you come from more Eastern cultures, you understand what it means to have this sense of collectiveness and corporate responsibility and covenantal bonds, those tend to be more intuitive than they tend to be for us in the West. And that's not to say that Western individualism is wholly bad. It's not. But it does negatively shape this aspect of kindness, this aspect of community. The hyper-individualism of the day is more and more disintegrating categories for self-sacrifice that cause us to be others-oriented, laying aside our preferences and our needs for the good of others. We're losing sense of what that looks like. It's eroding relationships since my needs and my desires are central. And until those are met, I cannot be bothered with yours. Now, this is a societal-wide issue. But Christians, if hear me. This individualism, That rules the day deeply impacts the church as well. We too often have this individualistic gospel that is void of the very kindness, the very Hesed that made you a Christian. It's a Christianity that too often is saturated in these cultural assumptions about the world that keep us from listening and learning and caring about other Christians as Scripture commands us to do. do. Giving of ourselves for the good of others who very well might not deserve it. It's a Christianity that too often prioritizes political parties that will perpetuate my preferred cultural assumptions, even to the destruction of Christian unity. It's It's a Christianity that rejects repentance when our idolatry or our self, self-orientation is confronted, it's a kind of Christianity that causes us, even now, as we hear all of this, to think about other people who fit these categories instead of considering myself and my own failures. And as a result, kindness, hesed, loving action that is merciful, that seeks the good of others, even if and especially if, they have not earned it or have not deserved it. It becomes incredibly rare for us to experience within, it, within the body of Christ, for the world to experience outside of the church. Loving kindness, as the Bible describes it, is more and more not what the world thinks about when they think about the church. Because we have failed to show this loving kindness because we have become self-oriented. We've bought in to the cultural assumptions about what is ultimate, which is my good, not the good of others. Now, if we're going to see this change, if we're going to see it transform, so that we are no longer self-oriented, but again, we get back to understanding the, the kindness that God calls us to show, It's going to take us more than trying to double down and be nice. We don't need to pursue being nice. Being nice costs us nothing. If we're going to experience true biblical kindness, something far deeper, far more severe needs to happen to us. And the way that I framed it is that we need to have our loves reordered. Explain to you what I mean, finally. Uh, Jamie Smith, who wrote a book several years ago uh, called You Are What You Love, uh, in the book he draws out uh, ancient wisdom from church fathers like Augustine by uh, arguing that we have, in many ways, bought into the modern idea that we are uh, thinking beings primarily. Uh, that the church has so often believed that Christian discipleship is a knowledge thing. The church Really, just tries to constantly make sure that we know and believe the right things. Now, of course, that's a huge piece of the role of the church, right? You're sitting here listening for 30 minutes to a guy trying to tell you some things that you should believe. It's part of what the church does. However, maybe this is true for the, a lot of you, it's certainly been true for me. I have known many people uh, with immense theological and biblical knowledge who don't show the fruit of the Spirit. They're not loving, they're not joyous. They're not peaceful, they're not patient, they're not kind. Uh, I know people that are smarter and sharper theologically than me who are also decidedly not Christians. You can gain endless amounts of Bible knowledge and still be spiritually dead. So Smith argues that we are not going to be the people God desires us to be simply by knowing the right things. But rather, if we're going to be the people that God desires us to be, Not only do we need to consider what's going on in our heads, but even more so, we need to consider what's going on in our hearts. We need to look at our longings and our desires, our passions, to look at what we love. And he says this about this idea. He said, You are not a thinking thing, you are a lover. Becoming a follower of Jesus is more than knowing what Jesus wants you to believe, it's loving what Jesus loves. And when we are not kind, put all that together, it is so often because we have disordered loves. We are not kind because we don't love God or others as we should. We are not kind because we don't love the ways that Jesus loved. And so we find ourselves not loving the outcast and the sick and the poor and the forgotten and the unseen the way that Jesus Loved. When we are not kind, the idea that Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for them really makes no practical sense to us because we don't understand fully kindness because our loves are disordered. I mean, what kind of kindness drives one to lay down their lives for their enemies? Well, it's a kindness that is rooted in properly Ordered loves. And too often we only love others when they first love us or prove themselves worthy of our love. But if we are to love the way that God calls us to love, to show kindness the way that God shows us kindness, we must experience that loving kindness of God that He has extended to us. I mean, the kindness that we have not earned, nor we, nor have we deserved. When we are not kind, so often it's because we have not fully recognized the extent to which God in Christ has been kind to us. In their book, uh, in, in his book, uh, Resident Aliens, a well-known scholar, Stanley Hauerwas, uh, is considering the ethics of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Particularly, Jesus' comment to turn the other cheek He's wrestling with what kind of practical sense does that make in everyday life. And Hauerwas, he he notes this. Let me read this for you because I think it helps us understand the extent of the loving kindness of God. He said, if Jesus had put forth behavior like turning the other cheek when someone strikes you as a useful tactic for bringing out the best in other people, then Jesus could be justly accused of ethical of uh, being ethically naive. But on the basis for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Do you catch that? Jesus doesn't tell us to turn the other cheek because that's in some way gonna win the heart of the person that slaps us. He calls us to turn the other cheek because that's the way God is. He goes on to say that God is kind to the ungrateful, and the selfish. That's who God is. That's what loving kindness looks like, particularly in Jesus. Because kindness is extending mercy, and grace, and love, and compassion to those who are ungrateful and selfish. I mean, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of kindness. He is the fullest reflection of God's kindness. He is the purest example of kindness. And also the one who is truly and completely kind. See, when our instinct is to only love when others have first loved us, Jesus' kindness instead loved us first by laying down his life for us on the cross. When our first instinct is to retaliate when our enemies strike our cheek, Jesus' kindness instead takes blow after blow after blow on the cross. When our first instinct is to think primarily about ourselves and our good, Jesus' kindness says, greater love has no man than one who is willing to lay down his life for his friends and you are my friends. The one who had the least obligation to show kindness does so. Because such kindness, in the words of Hauerwas, is who God is. And granted, while we're never ever going to express that kind of kindness in the way that Jesus did, the more and more we remember how God was kind to us in Jesus the more we are able to then extend that same kindness to others. I mean, more than anything, my friends, what I want us to experience is not the niceness of Jesus. If you read through various stories of Jesus in the Gospels, there are times when Jesus would be anything but nice, but he was always kind. He always sought the good of others. He was always others-oriented. And my friends, I want you to experience primarily that kindness of Jesus toward you. Seeing Christ on the cross is the way that we see and experience the kindness of God. So whether you're a Christian or not today, that kindness is extended to you as you trust in him. And my prayer would be, all of us would experience it because I am convinced that as we more and more realize that great kindness, the more and more it makes us people who are then able to show the same kind of kindness to others who are ungrateful, who are selfish, who haven't earned it or deserve it, that we more and more show them who God is in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness, unmerited, undeserved. God, there is nothing that we have done, nor could we ever do, to deserve what you have given. Lord, I pray that that reality would sink so deep into our souls that we would then become people of kindness. Lord, we do trust that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that your Spirit works in us. But like all other aspects of the fruit, it's also something that we cultivate. So God, would you give us what we need to cultivate it. Make us not just nice people, make us kind people. That the world might see and experience your loving kindness through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.